Chapter Four, Part G of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Four, Part G. In all this confused rambling, I thought there might be a curious and interesting little observation about animal migration, if one could trust the accuracy of an imagination more romantic than factual, and I reduced it to some kind of coherence, and added it not only to my report for the Federal Disruptions Commission, but for the dispatches I found time to send in to the intelligencer. I hardly suppose it is necessary to mention that by now my literary talents could no longer be denied or ignored, and that these items were not edited nor garbled, but appeared exactly as I had written them, boxed and double-leaded, on page one. Though the matter was really trivial, and in confessing it I don't mind admitting all of us are subject to petty vanities, I was gratified to notice too that Lafassacy had the discernment to realize how much the public appreciated my handling the news about the grass, for he advertised my contributions lavishly. In my news stories I could tell no less than the full truth, which was that the grass, after remaining patriotically dormant throughout the war, except for the spurt northward to destroy the remnants of the invading host, had once more set out upon the march. The loss of color I had pointed out to Joe was less apparent each day of our stay, as the old vividness revived with its renewed energy, and the sweet music which entranced him gave place to the familiar crackling, growing louder with each footed advance down the slope culminating every so often in thunderous explosions. For down the thousand-mile incline of the Mississippi Basin it was pouring with accelerating tempo, engulfing or driving everything before it. It was the old story of the creeping stolons, the stepped-up tangled mass, and the great towering bulk behind. The falling forward and then the continued headway, once more the eastbound trains and highways clogged with refugees. My affairs not permitting a longer stay, I returned to New York, but I could not pry Joe from his preoccupation. A.W., he argued, I be no more used to consolidated pemmican right now than ground glass in a ham sandwich. My backside might be in a swivel chair, but my soul would be right up here. It's Whitman translated visibly and tangibly, A.W. Eh, Come, lovely and soothing death, undulate round and round. Besides, you've got the old man now. He's worth more to you than I ever will be. He loves business. It's just like the army, without a doddering old general staff to pull him back every time he gets enthusiastic. If anyone else in my organization had talked like this, I would have fired him immediately. But I was sure, down underneath his aesthetic poses and artistic pretensions, there was a foundation of good common sense inherited from the general. Give the boy his head, I thought. Let him stay here and rhapsodize till he gets sick of it. He'll come back the better executive for having got it out of his system. Also, as he himself pointed out, I had his father to rely on, and he was a man to whip up production if ever there was one. The chief purpose of my visit to the grass was, at least momentarily, a failure. 
There was little point sampling and analyzing the weed for its possible use as an ingredient in a food concentrate if it were impossible to set up a permanent place to gather and process it. I won't say I considered my time wasted, but its employment had not been profitable. But even immersed in the ever-expanding affairs of consolidated pemmican and allied industries, as we now called the parent company, I could not get away from the grass. Each hour's eastward thrust was reported in detail by an hysterical radio, and every day the newspapers printed maps showing the newly overrun territory. Once more the grass was the most prominent thought in men's minds, not only over the land of its being, but throughout the world. Scientists of every nationality studied it at first hand, and only strict laws and rigid searches by customs inspectors prevented the importation of specimens for dissection in their own laboratories. The formula of Miss Francis, now at length revealed in its entirety, was discussed by everyone. There was hardly a man, woman, or child who did not dream of finding some means to destroy or halt the grass, and thereby make of himself an unparalleled benefactor. A new crop of suggestions was harvested by the intelligencer. In addition to the old, they included such expedients as re-inoculating the grass with a metamorphizer in the hope either of its cannibalistically feeding upon itself or becoming so infected with giantism as to blow up and burst. The failure of the experiment on the Russian steppes was ignored or forgotten by these contributors. Building barriers of dry ice and the use of infrared lamps one of the proposals which tickled the popular imagination was a plan for vast areas to be roofed in glass-enclosed giant greenhouses to offer refuge for mankind in the very teeth of the grass artesian wells could be sunk it was argued power harnessed to the tides of the sea and piped underground the populace fed by means of concentrates or hydroponic farming everyone except those in authority the ones who would have to approve the expenditure of the vast sums necessary thought there was something in the idea but nothing was done about it many believing physical means could be of little avail suggested metaphysical ones and these were always punctiliously printed by the intelligencer they ranged from disregarding the existence of the weed and carrying on ordinary life as though it presented no threat through holding the correct thought praying daily for its miraculous disappearance, preferably at a simultaneous moment, to reorganizing the spiritual concepts of the human totality. But even without the newspapers, George Thario would have kept me informed. Piteous, if not too comprehensive for small emotions, he wrote in a letter, only a little more intelligible than the stuff in his notebooks. Yesterday I stopped by a small farm, or ranch, as local grandiloquence, ever-seeking purple justification, has it here. Sub-marginal land, the tabulating minds of government officials, spectacles precise on nosebridge, daily ration of exlax, safe in briefcase, would have labeled it, sitting in expectant unease on hilltops, and the uncomfortable slopes between. Dry farming, the place illegally acquired from cattle range, more proper and more profitable, by Nestor Grandsire, surviving drought and dust storm, locust, weevil, and straying herds, feeding rachitic kids, dull women, and helpless men for half a century. The Farm Resettlement Administration would have moved them to fatter ground a hundred times, but blindly obstinate they held to what was theirs and yet not theirs. 
In the front seat, the man and wife, and what remained of quick moments of drop-jawed ecstasy, in back unwieldy chicken coop, slats patched with bits of apple box and wire, weathered gray, astonished cocks crowing out of time and hens heads down, hitched behind the family cow, stiff-ribbed and empty-uttered. The grass, deaf lover, had seized the shack, its fingers curled the solid door, body pressed forward for joyful rape. The nesters don't look back but pant ahead. The bumping of the car accommodates the cow. I've had to leave the lodge, of course, and spend my nights in a thin house with a roof shaped like two playing cards, with the misleading sign, in punishment crippled, half-fallen from its support, tourists accommodated. If accommodation be empty spaces with mottos and porcelain piss-pots, then punishment was unrighteous. I shall move on soon, perhaps for the worse, since there is green now beneath the blue. If I can ever come away, I shall. But I'd not miss this gladiator show, this richieri swing. Give my best to the old boy. Tell him I'd write direct, but family feeling makes it hard. Joe. I showed the letter to the general, expecting him perhaps to be annoyed by Joe's instability, but he merely said, Boy shouldn't be wasting his talents. Put it in sound. Orchestrate it. Just as Joe's enthusiasm covered only one aspect of the grass, so his retreat from lodge to wayside hostel to city hotel embraced only a minute sector of the great advance. Neither moral nor brute force slowed the weed. It clutched the upper reaches of the Rio Grande and ran down its course to the Gulf of Mexico like quicksilver in a broken thermometer. It went through Colorado, Oklahoma, and Kansas. It nibbled at the forks of the Platte. It left behind the Great Salt Lake like a chipped diamond lost in an enormous setting. There is no benefit to be derived from looking at the darker side of things, and indeed it is a universal observation that there is no misfortune without its compensation. The loss of the great cattle grazing areas of the West increased the demand for our concentrated foods by the hundredfold. We paid no duty on the products shipped in from our South American factories, for they competed only with ourselves, and we did the country the humanitarian service of preventing a famine by rushing carload after carload westward, rising above all thoughts of petty gain, by making no increase whatever in our prices, despite the expanding demand. About this time it became indisputable that button Gwinnett fleas was no longer of value to consolidated pemmican. His Yankee shrewdness and caution, which enabled him to run the corporation when it was merely a name and a quotation on the stock market, had the limits of its virtues. He was extraordinarily provincial in outlook, and quite unable to see the concern on a world scale. In view of our vast expansion, such narrowness had become an unbearable hindrance. I had permitted him to hold a limited number of shares, and to act nominally as secretary, in order to comply with the regulations of the Security and Exchange Commission, but now it was expedient to add to our officers directors of other companies whose fields were complementary to ours. Besides, in General Thario I had a much abler assistant, and so, perhaps reluctantly because of my over-sensitivity, I displaced Fleas, and making the General President of the Corporation, I accepted the post of Chairman of the Board. 
I must say he took a perfectly natural business move with unbecoming ill-grace. It was mine, Mr. Weiner, you know it was mine, and I did not protest when you stole it. I worked loyally and unselfishly for you. It isn't the money, Mr. Weiner, really it isn't. It's the idea of being thrown out of my own business. At least let me stay on the board of directors. You'll never have any trouble from me, I promise you that. It distressed me to reject his abject plea, but my hands were tied by my devotion to the welfare of the company. Besides, he annoyed me by his palpably untrue reference to what had been a legitimate transaction, never giving a thought to my generosity in not exposing his chicanery, nor the fact that the dummy he manipulated bore no resemblance whatever to the firm I had brought by my own effort to its present size. Leaving matters in the able hands of General Thario, after warning Joe he had better soon return to his father's assistance, I went abroad to arrange for wider European representation. There I found a curious eagerness to be of help to me, and almost fawning servility, antipathetic to my democratic American notions. Oddly enough, the Europeans looked upon the United States as a doomed country, thinking I, like some members of our wealthier classes, had come to escape disruption and dislocation at home. Only in England did I find the belief prevalent that the Americans would somehow muddle through, because after all, they're the same sort of chaps we are, you know. After a highly successful trip, I returned home the same day the grass reached the headwaters of the Mississippi. William Rufus Lafassacy astonished me, as well as every newspaperman in the country, by resigning as editor of the Daily Intelligencer, a post he had held before many of its reporters were born. When I phoned him to come to my office and explain himself, he refused, in tones and manner I had not heard from any man since the days when I had wasted my talents as a subordinate. Having none of the pettiness of pride, which makes some men fearful of their position, since he would not come to my office, I went to his. There he shocked me for the third time. A high, glossy collar, a flowing and figured cravat, concealed the famous diamond stud, while instead of the snuff-box, his hands hovered over a package of cheap cigarettes. Wiener he rasped, jettisoning all those courtesies to which I had become accustomed. I never thought I'd be glad to see your vapid face again, unless on a marble slab in some city morgue. But now you're here, money-bag slapping the insides of your thighs in place of the scrotum for which you could have no possible use. I am delighted to tell you in person to take my paper my paper sir note that well for all your dirty pawings could not make it anything but mine and supposit it i hope it frets you wiener for the sake of your sniveling but immortal soul i sincerely hope it rasps you like a misplaced tear shirt you will get some miserable dickspittle to take my place, some mangy bookkeeping pimp with a permanent waved wife and three snotty-nosed brats, but the spirit and guts of the intelligencer depart with W.R. Lafassacy. I disregarded both his ill manners and his bombast. 
"'What's the matter, Bill?' I asked kindly. "'Is it more money? You can write your own ticket, you know. Within reason, of course.' His fingers looked for the snuff-box, but found only the cigarettes, which he inspected puzzledly. "'Wiener, no man could do you justice. You are the bloody prototype of all the arse-lickers, panders, arsonists, kidnappers, cutthroats, pickpockets, abortionists, pilferers, cheats, forgers, sneak-thieves, sharpers, and blackmailers since Jacob swindled his brother.' Do not fawn upon me, little man. I am too old to want women or money. The sands are running out, and I shall never now read the immortal Hobbes. But I'll not die in your bloody harness. In me you do not see the man who picked up the torch of Franklin and Greeley and Dana where Henry Watterson dropped it. Loose of your gangrenous chains, you behold the freelance correspondent of the North American Newspaper Alliance, the man who will devote his decline in years to reporting in the terse and vivid prose for which he is justly famous, the progress of the grass which strangles the country as you have tried to strangle me. Again, I put personal feelings aside. If your mind is really made up, we'll want your stuff for the intelligencer, Bill. Sir, you may want. I hope the condition persists. There being no profit in arguing with a madman, I made arrangements to replace him immediately. I reproduce here not for self-justification, which would be superfluous, but merely for what amusement it may afford, one of his accounts which appeared in the columns of so many third- and fourth-rate newspapers. I won't say it shows the decay of a once possibly great mind, but it certainly reveals that the intelligencer suffered no irreparable loss. Today at Dubuque, Iowa, the Mississippi was crossed. Not by red men in canoes, nor white on logs or clumsy rafts, nor yet by multi-wheeled locomotives gliding over steel bridges, nor airplanes so high the wide stream was a thread below. Nature and devastation, hand in hand, for the moment one and the same, crossed it today as Quantrell or Kirby Smith or Nathan Bedford Forrest crossed it, sabers glittering so many forgotten years ago. But if the men in gray and butternut raided a store or burned a tavern, they thought it a mighty victory and went home rejoicing. The green invader is an occupier and colonizer come to remain for all time, leaving no town, no road, no farm where it has passed. A few weeks ago Dubuque was still here quiet, old and pleasant, the butt of affectionate jokes, the grass still miles away, the population still hopeful of salvation, and then, because of the panic, the frantic scurrying to save things once valuable and now only valued, no one noticed when a betraying wind blew seeds beyond the town over the river to find receptive soil on the Wisconsin side.
The seeds germinated, the clump flourished, it cut the highway and reached down the banks into the Mississippi, waiting. And while it waited, it built up a greater bulk for itself behind and beside. Each day it pushed a little farther toward midstream, drowning its own foremost runners so those behind might have solidity to advance upon. Meanwhile, from the west, the continent imposed upon a continent came closer. The other day, Dubuque went. Its weathered bricks and immature stucco alike obliterated. The grass ran out like a bather on a cold morning, hastening to the water before timidity halts him. Although I was watching, I could not tell you at what exact instant the gap was closed, at what moment the runners from one clump intertwined with those of the other, but such a moment did occur, and shedding water like a surfacing whale, the united bodies rose from the riverbed to form a verdant bridge. You could not walk across it, at least no man I know would want to try, but it gives the illusion of permanency no work of man, stone or steel or concrete, has ever given. And it is a dismaying thing to see man's trade taken over by nature in this fashion. The bridge is a dam also. All the debris from the upper reaches collects against it, and soon there will be floods to add to the other distress the grass has brought. More than half the country is gone now. The territories pillaged from Mexico, argued from Britain, bought from France, have all been lost. Only the original states and Florida remain. Shall we be more successful in defending our basic land than all the acquisitions of a century and a half? But why add any more? Dry, senile, without feeling... My only wonder was that his stuff was printed, even in the obscure media where it appeared. End of chapter 4, part G